Heavenly Father, we know we are so unworthy of your grace, the grace that has come to us in these last days, that we, like Israel of old, have gone astray and sought our own ways, and deserve your wrath and condemnation. But Father, we are grateful that you have brought the promises of the Son of God to pass in these last days by which we may be made participants in his life through him bearing our curse and all those things that were opposed to us, having nailed them to the cross and being raised from the dead in fullness of life by the Spirit, has now granted to us that life that is in your Son. We thank you, Son of God, We ask that you would help us now as your servants, as servants of the King of Kings, to understand more deeply your word and to live out of that life that is ours in Christ Jesus, looking to the victory that will be ours through Christ when the Son of Man returns in his glory. We pray in his name. Amen. So today we are looking at uh, Galatians 5, but uh, we are continuing on. We looked at Galatians 5, 1 to 12 last time, and we're going to be looking at Galatians 5, verses 13 to following, and I hope that you've had a chance to read these or uh, you're familiar with these verses. They're familiar to many of us because of the contrast between the fruits of the Spirit versus the works of the flesh. But I hope tonight that we will see these verses, perhaps in a fresh new way, in light of the fullness of the revelation that has been given to us in Christ Jesus in this epistle. And to do that, let's think a little bit about what we talked about last week. Last week, Paul begins with stand firm, right? In the liberty with which Christ has liberated you, that liberty with which he has liberated you in his resurrection life. That liberation, that liberation from the bondage under the law to which the Judaizers are now trying to bring the Galatians. They're trying to bring them back not only to bondage as it existed there under the law, where the sons of God were sons in the midst of that bondage, but they are trying to bring them back to complete and utter bondage. Because if you return to the older era now, you have returned to complete bondage and wrath under the law. And so what were the Judaizers especially spearheading here to do that? They were spearheading circumcision. They wanted the children of God to be circumcised, to be circumcised that, in fact, they can go back to the former administration. You see. As if what Christ has done is not sufficient. What Christ has done by actually bearing the curse of the law and implicitly, therefore, bearing the curse that is even represented in that bloody rite of circumcision. Him as being circumcised unto death and being raised from the dead in newness of life, in liberty, in freedom from the law. So, 
this desire of the Judaizers to bring them back is really the equivalent of paganism. It's really the equivalent of paganism. And we saw that Paul says then they should just go ahead and emasculate themselves. And Dave made an interesting comment after class. He said, you know, that would also make it difficult for them to carry out the promises uh, of the Old Testament, which involve seed and the land. Well, here now, you see, we're, we want to see the contrast that Paul brings out between the spirit and the flesh in this chapter in light of the whole dynamics that we've seen so far. Okay. In other words, this is not simply the individual struggle that you experience in your Christian life. Now, it is that. It is that, no doubt. But that struggle that you experience in your Christian life is a manifestation of a broader struggle, a struggle between two ages. And you see the Judaizers, by wanting the Galatians to go back to the former era, are saying, we want you to be in bondage to the flesh. You see? And Paul is implicitly saying, if you do that, you're going to work the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are going to characterize your life. And so he's going to, then when he contrasts the works of the flesh versus the works of the spirit, he's going to show that you see only in the spirit, only by trusting in the promises of God through Jesus Christ, him as the seed promised by the father, and only by trusting in him and receiving the fullness of his spirit by grace, can we stand? Can we stand in the life that is above? And so all these fruits of the Spirit will characterize the heavenly life that we have in Christ that is above. The key and capstone of that being love, the love of Christ, the love of Christ now in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and living out of that life. So, we're going to think about how all these things are related to this dynamic as we go through these verses. Well, we first want to start by looking at verses 13 through 15. And you'll notice here that he repeats something that he began the chapter with, freedom. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. Now, he's saying you were called to freedom, brethren. And then he speaks of love. Well, throughout this epistle, he's been connecting freedom to faith. As well. In fact, we see earlier in verse 6 of chapter 5, but faith working through love. Faith in the work of Christ to deliver us from the bondage of the elder era to liberation as sons and daughters of God. And out of that liberty, we have the fruit of love. So you see, Paul is bringing about, he is in effect suggesting the priority of faith, even the priority of faith to love. 
as important as love is the most central thing. The greatest of these is love, 1 Corinthians 13. And yet that love is only in us, not by moral exertion, by our own works, by our own virtues, but it is only in us by the grace of Christ. They're trusting in Christ in his promises. And out of laying hold of this arena above by faith and the justifying verdict that has come to us in Christ, then we have the love of God poured out into our hearts because we experience the fullness of God's love for us, no longer under his wrath and displeasure, but recipients of the fullness of his love. And therefore, if he loves us so greatly, how are we to respond? We are to respond in love, right? We respond reciprocally. This is a relationship. He's began that relationship earlier in chapter 4. I mean, he's brought it back further, but in 4, we see it highlighted. You see, with the Father, you see, sending forth the Spirit, and then, of course, with the Son, who's the center of that love. And the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me, Galatians 2.20. So, Paul begins this section with the already of the love. In other words, we have an indicative here in verse 13, just as we have an indicative in verse 25. All right? We have an indicative. And then that ends up being followed later on by an imperative, by implication. Now, we've talked a bit about this before. What is an indicative in grammar? Good, it's a statement of fact. Is this a statement of fact that you've been called to freedom? Yes. And in what were you called to freedom? You were called to freedom in the call of Jesus Christ. As Christ, you see, was called in his resurrection. You were called to freedom, brethren. This is an indicative fact. What's an imperative? What's that? It's a command, right? It's a command. So this is a statement of fact. And this is a command. And you'll notice in this chapter, the commands flow out of the statement of fact. What we mean by this is, you see, you cannot separate Paul's commands here, whether it be the command of love or the fruits of the Spirit, you cannot separate those from what Jesus Christ has accomplished. You're first laying hold of that accomplishment, you see. You're laying hold of that by faith. And then, hey, that means I've been crucified to the old era, and I've been crucified to the flesh with its sinful passions in Christ Jesus, and therefore I have been made to sit with him in heavenly places by the Spirit. Thus, how should I live? I should live as one who lives in heaven. I should not live as the unbeliever in the flesh lives. He lives out of a sense of lack, does he not? 
The unbeliever lives out of a sense of lack, as if I do not have and if I must acquire. And the acquiring is the acquiring of this world. They do not live out of faith. And therefore, they produce these works of the Spirit, which are to gain control of the world. You live out of what you possess already. And the irony here, of course, is that the Judaizers are living according to the flesh. I think that's what Paul is going to be implying here, that they are living according to the flesh, and by them trying to take into the Galatians, they are trying to draw the Galatians back into their lifestyle. You see, this is the other relationship, that under the flesh, and the Judaizers are spearheading it. And so do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. This liberty is not a liberty for the flesh. This is a liberty unto the spirit. Right? And so clearly Paul is not just talking about liberty the way we sometimes think of it in America. What's liberty for many Americans? I'm not opposed to the political liberty and wonderful things that we've received in our country. But... In terms of the culture, what does it mean to be have liberty? Do what you please. There you go. Just do whatever you want. There's no law. You know, I maybe have to keep the laws of the land if I want to survive here. But basically, other than that, no real laws. I'm free to do whatever I want to. Is that what Paul's saying here? Is that the kind of liberty that he's talking about in Christ Jesus? No. Because if you do what you please, you are a slave to the flesh. He is talking about a liberty which has liberated you unto the life above. And thus, you've even been liberated to obey the law of God, the command of love. And this is the perspective out of which you do obey the law of God, out of the liberty that you have in Christ Jesus. In that liberty, it is not oppressive to you. But the Judaizers, the Judaizers wanting you to go back to the former era are calling you to make that era the end in itself. They're calling you to make the world an end in itself. And in that era, the law is a law of curse and bondage to you. Well, notice what he says here. You were called to freedom, brethren. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Hmm. This is a very interesting statement because this language of one another crops up quite a few times in this epistle, in fact. And uh, if you'll notice, Paul has it in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. And then again, in verse 26, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Instead, 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So he's got this idea of love for the brethren. What's being created by the 
Judaizers in this community. As he calls people to make the world in and in itself, what are you going to have? Are you not going to have factions and divisions? Is that not what it is to compete for things in the world? If I'm looking for my own prestige in this world, am I not going to be at competition with someone else who's seeking prestige as well? We can't both have the full prestige, you see. Judaizers get the prestige, you see, and that's their focus is to have people drawn to themselves. You've got to take it from other people. There's competition there. There's strife if you're living according to the flesh. You aren't serving one another. You are calling yourself to be served. But he says, serve one another. The battle is not between you and the saints. In fact, it's very interesting he actually uses this term, one another, uh, when he talks about the conflict between the spirit and the flesh in verse 17. For these, that is the spirit and the flesh, these are in opposition to one another. Hmm. Is he saying that is the real opposition, Galatians? Not you and your fellow saints who are in the spirit, but the opposition between the spirit and the flesh. Well, he says to serve one another. To serve. To serve as in Christ Jesus. In 6.2 he says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. As Christ served, then we're to serve, right? If your perspective is one of being, having all of the blessings that you have and prize in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places, why do you need people to serve you? Why should that be the focus of your life? Is that not the focus of your life when you're thinking in worldly ways? I need the attention of other people, or I need them to do some earthly benefit for me. I need them to serve me. But if you are liberated from that, if you are liberated from the world, and you are a participant in the age to come as your chief and highest prize and goal, the Lord God Almighty and His love and grace and His blessings in his life, in heaven. Then you're filled with abundance. You can give of yourself. You can give of yourself in service to others. In the midst of all the afflictions that you might go through, in the midst of that, you have that transcendent consolation in Christ Jesus. Because that heavenly life is your glory and your joy. And so, he says, serve one another. In other words, do not make others slaves either. What are the Judaizers doing? They want to bring you back under bondage to the old. Why? They want to make you slaves. That's what happened in chapter 2 when the Judaizers, the false brethren, are there with, with Paul you see, he says, we did not give in to them for a minute. Because they came to make us slaves. They tried to subjugate us. We did not give in to them for a minute. So what is this? Not to make others slaves. What is the mindset of those in the flesh? 
I have this world. That is my prize and my joy and my glory. And therefore, I need from you. I need you to serve me. I need you to be my slave. And ultimately, that means to dehumanize you. It makes you into a thing. Because, you see, if you too much are following your liberty, as it is in Christ, I can't control and manipulate you for all my worldly gains. I need to dehumanize you as much as possible so you can be controlled by me. You don't make your own decisions. I make them for you. You serve me. And so we'll see that even the lusts of the flesh, all the sins of the flesh, in some ways, are a manipulation of other people. They are dehumanizing of other people. They are making you impersonal. And what is Paul's consolation for you? Does it not go back to the fact that you possess the Spirit? And the Spirit is no abstraction. This is this personal life of the Father who loved his people to send the Son, and the Son who loves his people so much that he comes for them, and the Holy Spirit who gives himself to you by the Father, all three in fellowship with one another, the three persons of the Godhead from eternity, the most ultimate and great persons, because it's God. That life is all glorious. And the life that he has given you is therefore the relationship with the greatest person or the three persons of the Godhead that is even imaginable. He liberates you to be a true person, truly free in Christ Jesus. Liberates you from the enslavement and control of others. And liberates you from slaving, enslaving and controlling others by his grace. Though the fruits or the works of the flesh are still that which battle within us. And he will not neglect that. Well, what does he mean by love is the fulfillment of the law? Look at verse 14. For love is the fulfillment of the law. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, one thing is clear. We can, we can make a comparison between this and Romans uh, chapter 13, verses 8 through 11. We can ask, what is Paul saying here by love is the fulfillment of the law? I have somebody read for us verses 8 through 11. In other words, what I'm going to ask, be asking you to think about, is there any sense in which love being the fulfillment of the law may have a sense of fulfillment in the new era? Or is Paul simply saying that there is, that's what the law has always been, and I'm speaking of nothing in terms of fulfillment. I mean, it's certainly, even if there's fulfillment here, it's, it's speaking about what the law has always been. 
But now is he speaking about some way in which it's come to its fullness? I'm asking the question somewhat tentatively, okay? And I want us to look at verses 8 through 11 here. If somebody could read for us 13, 8 through 11. Let no debt remain on outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Okay, you'll notice uh, that verses 8 and 10 both speak of uh, love being the fulfillment of law. Okay, so we may think of this, this seems to think of fulfillment language. But then in the middle, he says, uh, if there is, in verse 9, if there is any commandment, it is summed up or headed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Maybe that suggests to us that there's no fulfillment motif here. Maybe it suggests simply that uh, he is speaking about uh, only the way the law has always been and being headed up by the commandment to love. And that there's no sense of fulfillment in a fuller sense in the New Covenant in terms of the eschatological fulfillment. Um, well, there's one other place that Paul does use this term heading up all things, and that's in Ephesians 1.10. Someone want to read that for us? With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. Okay, very good. So here now we have a summing up as well. Just like love summed, uh, headed up the law, we have a heading up of all things in Christ. Now clearly this heading up, is a redemptive historical heading up where it's headed up now in its fullness in Christ Jesus. Okay. Is there something like that going on in Romans 13 where fulfill is on both sides and that there's supposed to be some sense of fullness in the new era? I'm afraid I'm only at this point able to raise the question. I don't feel like I have an answer for it unless some of you feel like you have an answer for it. But I want to suggest to you that there is at least some sense in which Paul does see the love command having its expression in the contrast between the flesh and the spirit in this chapter in Galatians. And that contrast is a filling out of the history of redemption. It's a fullness of the history of redemption. So perhaps love comes to expression in greater fullness now as indeed the law is organically united more fully to the fullness of the times. Of course, the law is given by God at Mount Sinai and is the law for the people of God 
throughout all ages, but it's organically connected in some ways to the services of the law in terms of the sacrificial system and the judicial law. Is there a sense in which now we see the fullness, you see, of the sacrificial law and the judicial law having manifest itself in Christ, so those organic connections of the moral law are more fully related to this contrast between the flesh and the spirit? Certainly, you have something going on in uh, Galatians chapter 3, where you have Paul speaking of the situation where there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, for all are one in Christ Jesus. That oneness certainly brings about a level in which all are on the same playing field. No one has any more rights in the inheritance of God in the New Covenant than one another. No slave is better than a free man, or no free man is better than a slave, no male than a female, in terms of inheritance rights in the, in the New Covenant. And there is some relative contrast to the older administration where there are distinctions between slave and free, Jew and Gentile. And there then some degree of boasting seems to be allowed. Some degree of boasting. As Paul will say in Romans, where is boasting? It is excluded. By what law? By the law of, of works? No, but of the law of faith. There is excluded. Uh, and what we have here is it seems to be excluded in its fullness because there are no distinctions in the inheritance between Jew and Gentile, slave and free. You have your brother and sister have all that you have in Christ Jesus. And because of that identity, the fullness of love. You're called to the fullness of love in Christ Jesus for them. Now, this might be seen over against, for instance, the boasting that we find going on in chapter 6, chapter six of Galatians. For those who are circumcised do not keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But may it be that I should never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There is no boasting because the world in its fullness has been crucified to me and I to the world. But as he sees, there is some degree of the world or the elementary principles of the world still reticent in the older administration. And so this crucifixion means the crucifixion of his life to the world, even in terms of the elementary principles of this world under the former administration. And therefore to boasting, per se. So there is boasting in the world, and perhaps there is some degree of a small b for boasting still not completely eradicated in the older administration, where there are distinctions between people in that inheritance. 
But the law of God is there with a command of love, which is the center of all things, and is that which is the capstone of the law of God in the Old Testament itself. And so is it now brought to its fullest expression in the age of the Spirit? Well, if you have a question about that, maybe you're wondering what I might be saying. It has to be the Son is incarnated. Yes. <laughs> I think so. And I, and I, and I, and I, and I want to give you some passages in Romans, okay, that might suggest this. You've, of course, seen what Jim is saying, and he's brought us ahead I want you to think about Romans chapter 2, verses 26 to 29. Someone want to read that for us? say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols. Is that where I'm... Uh, you're, you're ahead of us. I think I said verse 29, but maybe I didn't. Romans 2, 29? 26, I'm sorry. You, you're right. I, I was just looking at 29. You're right. Verses 26 to 29. I'm, okay. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Okay, we are talking here about the one who is circumcised inwardly in the heart by the Spirit, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Now, what is he talking about here? Is he not talking about the law, the one who keeps the law, verse 27, will not he who physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law? You see? So the law is still the standard for the New Testament Christian. He keeps the law, does he not? But then he goes on to speak about him. He is a Jew inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Circumcision by the Spirit. What have we seen in the last chapter about circumcision? What was circumcision in, do we think? In Christ, right? Circumcision in Christ, in his death, in his resurrection. 
Now we have him who is circumcised by the Spirit in heart, implicitly by the Spirit in who is in union with the Son, right? The Spirit of the Son, circumcised in the Son of God, and therefore living out a fuller life of the Spirit, as if to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah 31, 31, that in that day I'll forgive their sins and I'll write my law upon their hearts. As if there is a fulfillment, you see, of the eschatological promises to the prophets now found in this one circumcised in the heart. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, he seems to make that clearer. Someone want to read that for us? For what the Lord would not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay. So he, he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he's a sin offering in terms of the law, right? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, again, it's the law, but now it can be fulfilled in us in a way that it was not fulfilled before in the life of the saints of old, in the fullness of the times, in Christ. And I would push for this. What Jim has suggested here is Galatians 6.2. See, Christ served. Galatians 2.20, Christ who loved me and gave himself up for me, you see. It's Christ who served. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Why? Because he bore our burdens, did he not? He bore our burdens on the cross. In him was the embodiment of the law of God in his person. And so, therefore, now we are to live under the law of God in the fullness of the times in union with Christ. Obeying the law of Christ. You see, this does not mean that the law of Christ is some separate law, separate from the law of the Old Testament. Okay, there, and we're going to get into this when we have some time, but there are some who think the law of Christ is simply, there's simply kind of this higher level up here where there's the law, and it's embodied in the Old Testament legal code, and now it's embodied in Christ as if they're just two things coming straight down from heaven. And they have some similarities, but they're not organically connected. No, this is the law of God in the Old Testament, organically unfolded. The people of God disobedient to the law and therefore cast out of the land because of their disobedience to that law. And so what does the Lord God say? In the future, I will forgive their sins because I've been casting them out of the land and, and uh, held their sins against them. I will forgive their sins and put my law in their heart. The law that they've broken, I'm going to put in their heart. And then... 
the Son comes, the Son fulfills that law. The Son obeys the law of God. And he bears the curse of the law. He bears that final exile. He bears that curse and is raised from the dead so that now the fullness of the law is fulfilled in us by grace, imperfectly, while we're still sinners, but dependent upon his justifying verdict and the work of his Spirit in our hearts. So as we look at Galatians chapter 5, you see he begins in verse 13, you were called to freedom, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity from the flesh, but through love serve one another. That contrast, implicit contrast, he's going to be bringing from flesh versus spirit is implicit there when he begins verse 14, which says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see how the for of the whole law fulfilled in one word follows after the freedom. It is the conclusion of the freedom by which we have been set free and the command out of that to serve one another. Well, any comments or questions about that before we move on? Okay. Well, let's let's think about one other thing here that he says... For the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's some who have actually restricted this to Christians. Now, I do not believe you can do that here myself, although I do believe there's an emphasis on Christians. Notice the language we've already seen of one another, loving one another. Uh, and it's not biting and devouring one another, you see, like wild animals do, but it is loving one another in Christ Jesus. Now, why do I say you can't exclude this to believers? Well, uh, at least as I look through the fruits of the flesh versus the fruits of the Spirit, um, I think that Paul is... Some of the works of the flesh that he describes are actually works that can be instigated upon the unbeliever, right? All kinds of things. Fornication, sorcery, you name it. There are many things here that can be perpetrated against the unbeliever and would be a sin for doing so. And I think there is a connection between this love command and the conflict between the spirit and the flesh. And therefore, I'm suggesting that He's including the love of neighbor, including the unbeliever here. So that you do not violate the unbeliever. You do not, since you have life in the Spirit, you have that life that's in God himself above. You do not violate even the personality of the unbeliever and enslave the unbeliever. As much as they are enslaved themselves to sin, you do not participate in that enslavement. And so what he says in chapter 6 is he says in effect 610 
while you have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially to those of the household of faith. Then emphasizing the one another quality here of the kingdom. Well, let's uh, take a look at chapter 5, verses 16 through 26, then, uh, in general. And I'd like you to take a look at the uh, structural, proposed structure that I've given you here. And uh, what you'll notice, kind of an introduction to this so that you can see the connections here. As you can see, there's at both ends of the spectrum, there's this one another, one another language. And uh, Terry, did you get a handout? Okay. Um, Somebody else have an extra handout? No. Mary's going to get you one from the back. Um, There's... uh, one another, one another on both sides, okay? And then, but I say at the top, under the first one another, but I say walk by the Spirit and the lust of the flesh, you will not, you will certainly not complete. Verse 16. I'm suggesting to you that's like a capstone of this section, okay? Because I think it stands out as unique uh, in the rest of this structure. And it has words uh, as if it's a kind of a, a, a introductory command, which is a summary, it has key words that are tied to the arguments of that follow. Um, so uh, the first one, the first argument being for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, so that you may not, so that whatever you would, uh, so that. Not whatever you will, these things you do. I, I put that in kind of the order of the Greek. It's a little awkward, but I wanted you to see which words ended the sentence there. Uh, and I think that that is parallel, you see. That statement is parallel if you go down to those of Christ Jesus. See, if you go down there, those of Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and lusts. Okay, you will see that there are some key words there that also connect those two sentences together. Flesh, which is found elsewhere, but flesh and lusts together especially. All right. It also, both of these sentences also conveniently follow after uh, sentences that begin with, if by the Spirit. So if you go back up to the top, and you look under the sentence for the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, you'll find that sentence underneath it said, if by the spirit you are led, you are not under law. Okay. Now go down below, and uh, below, uh, down below, second to last sentence, if you live by the spirit, if by the spirit, you see that similarity, let us also walk or keep in step with the spirit. And so... Um, I'm looking at that as, you might think of it as an A-B-A-B relationship, if it simplifies it for you. And in the middle, you have two things, the contrast between the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit. And interestingly enough, the works of the flesh ends with, uh, and the works of the spirit both have such things in them as well. Uh, One, those who do such things 
uh, or practicing will not inherit the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of God will not inherit. And against such or such ones, there is not law. Okay. And I will suggest to you that those not under law, you see, are those in Christ, and they will be the ones who inherit, but the ones who are under law or under its curse will not inherit. Uh, so you will see then, I've highlighted some of the phrases at the end of these clauses for you because it looks like there's some similarity here. Uh, at least some of the, some of the verbs are negated, uh, not, uh, not complete, uh, not do in the next one, uh, and then not inherit down below. Um, and then we have other verbs, of course, like practicing, so forth. Now, what does <laughs> what I'd like to do is kind of go through these verses with this in mind, okay? Uh, with the thought in mind that Paul is telling us that in light of the contrast between the two ages, you see, between the flesh and the spirit, he's saying, walk by the spirit. If you walk by the spirit in faith, you see, you've been liberated. And therefore, if you walk by the Spirit in faith, you will not fulfill the deeds of the law. So how is it that you're not, uh, excuse me, you will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh? How is it that you will avoid the deeds of the flesh? By living by faith in the promises of God in Christ Jesus. By living by faith in that liberation which you have in Christ. And living out of that reality. The Judaizers are calling you to a life which neglects that reality, which calls you to look on the law as if it's not dependent upon the redemptive work of God in Christ, and to live, therefore, out of pure works. And if you do that, you will live by the flesh. It's only as you walk by the Spirit that you will not complete or fulfill the deeds of the flesh. And so then we have two arguments that seem to present that. But first of all, before we get into those arguments, let me suggest to you, you see, he is making an answer. This is an answer to do not bite and devour one another, okay? But instead, live by the Spirit, which is going to be peace and, and harmony in the church, Live in union with Christ and His Spirit. And notice when he says this, he says, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Now, you see, I have suggested to you that here the conflict is not simply between the flesh as it remains within you and the Spirit as, it subject, as He is subjectively in you. That is true. But that is a manifestation of this broader eschatological drama, this conflict between the two ages. The age that's arrived with the Spirit and that old age which you've been crucified to, but still the remnants of which remain in you and in which you live. Okay. In other words, these are two objective realms. And I believe that, therefore, he is looking at the spirit 
also as the objective standard by which you live. In other words, look to the heavenly kingdom as an objective standard for your life. He has said the law, which is an objective standard, is fulfilled in this one Lord to love your neighbor as yourself, and we find that fully manifest in this objective reality, this objective work of the Spirit. And so he says something similar to this, implying that walk by has an objective sense to it uh, in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verses 15 to 16. Somebody read that for us. Neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Okay. Notice what he says here. Neither circumcision or uncircumcision is anything but a new creation. The new creation, of course, being the new creation of the Spirit. And then he says, peace and mercy be upon those who walk by this rule. Walk by, and then this rule. Well, a rule is an objective standard, is it not? So the new creation is a rule. It's an objective standard. Walk by this rule. And so the language of walk by includes walking by a rule. And so when he says earlier in chapter 5 to walk by the Spirit, you see, in verse 16, he is also implying that we are to walk by the Spirit as our objective standard. In other words, we are to live by faith in that reality that God has brought in the heavenly kingdom. And that, as the fullness of the law, is to be our standard in Christ Jesus. That life above. Now, later on, I found out that I'm not alone in this. Thankfully, Herman Ritterboss says something similar. He says on page 282 of his Paul, an outline of his theology, when the Spirit is repeatedly spoken of in connection with liberty and obedience, he undoubtedly acts not only as the possibility but also as the norm of the new life. And then he actually quotes Galatians 5.26, walk by the Spirit. In fact, he says, to walk by according to the Spirit also speaks of a standard. Spirit and flesh not only represent two different powers, but also two different ethical principles. Yes? How could it be otherwise when the Lord, who is the Spirit, walks according to that rule? Yeah, good. Yeah. In fact, it was the Spirit, was it not, who came on Mount Sinai, who delivered the law, right? I brought my Spirit to guide them. Yes. Well... There is a tension 
though, a tension between the two ages for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we will look at that after our break. Okay, we're looking at verse 17 then. Uh, well, wait a minute. Uh, yeah, verse 17. <clears throat> for, if the, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, he's got the spirit here. If we're seeing an objective standard, we're also seeing a tension between the two ages. And it is clear here that... Paul is envisioning the Christian as still having the remnants of the flesh. Okay. The broader tension is between the spirit and the flesh, the cosmic tension, but that is manifest in the tension even in the life of the Christian. In fact, he has called us to live by the spirit so that we will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh, assuming Therefore, that we still have remnants of the flesh and can perform the deeds of the flesh. There is no perfectionism here in this chapter. There is a struggle. And that struggle is lived by faith, faith in what God has accomplished. Now, of course, you can see a similar struggle in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 to 17. I want to read that for us. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 to 17. I'll tell you what, let's, uh, let's cut it short and uh, just go to uh, verse, the beginning, uh, verse 13, 11 to 13, for the sake of time. Put on the full armor of God, so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. And then he begins verse 14 with, Stand firm, therefore. Okay, notice that stand firm that's in fact repeated there a couple times, uh, actually three times, one in 11, one in 13, and one in 14. Uh, Similar language to that used in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Keep standing firm, okay, in that liberty. And here he's also, he's talking about a struggle, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces. So he's talking about a struggle in which we're called to take up the armor of God, and that armor of God involves the shield of faith as well, verse 16. All right, taking up the shield of faith. So living by faith and standing firm in that reality that we have in this struggle. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 to 8 says a little bit more about the armor of God. And, of course, you may know Paul embodying this himself in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I buffet my body and make it my slave. See, there is that struggle, that tension he feels as a Christian 
in between the two ages. So, even when we speak of the victory of the Spirit, we still recognize the struggle between flesh and spirit. But Paul wants to emphasize the priority of the life in the Spirit, the eternal nature of that life. This is the eschatological gift of the Spirit. And if we lay hold of the Spirit by faith and the life in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. Okay, We will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. That's how you lay hold of... That's how you live in obedience. You live in obedience out of faith that you are a possessor of the glory that's above. So when you are tempted with the things of this world... And when you are tempted to therefore control and manipulate others and the things of this world for your own gratification, which comes out of a position of lack, you say no. By faith, I recall, by the grace of God, by the word of God, that I have been made a participant in the heavenly places, that I possess everything in abundance in Christ Jesus, in him by the Spirit. And by that faith, you see, you can stand the wilds of the devil. Now, um, I've already made this comment to you about one another, how they are in conflict, in opposition to one another. You see, they're at odds with one another. And again, is this something where he's saying, this is the tension. These two are in odds with one another. Don't you and the church be at odds with one another. No, by the Spirit, you live in that life, you see, where you are in harmony. With one another. Now, let's want to take a look at verse um, uh, 24, which I'm suggesting is parallel. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who belong to Christ, you see, have crucified the flesh. Is he therefore saying, you see, that, you see, those who are in the Spirit have crucified the flesh, and that flesh cannot reign over them. If you live out of the Spirit, you will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. If you live by the Spirit, and how are you going to live by the Spirit? By being in Christ, right? Because the Spirit is given to Christ in his resurrection, And so you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Why? Has not Christ also crucified the flesh with its passions and desires? You see, in Christ you have crucified it. So this implies that Christ himself has been crucified to the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, does this mean that Christ internally had any sense of sin and desire for worldly things? No. His temptations were external. Okay, They did not enter his heart as if he felt a compunction towards sin. But if you will, he experienced, you see, the flesh, as I put it, as he is a son, yet he is under the curse legally, And he, that flesh that's involved there, the flesh, he experiences the curse of the flesh. 
So, think about that. We've cru- he's, he's been crucified to the flesh with its passions and desires. Does that imply that you see not only did he legally bear our sin for our passions and desires, that is central there, but that he actually took the abuse of the flesh upon himself so that all of the opposition that sinful men do in their works of the flesh were opposed to the Son of Man in his life. So that, if you will, if someone was to carry on hatred, which is a work of the flesh, it is exerted against the Son of God. See, if one is to engage in sorceries and trying to manipulate, would it not be exerted against the Son of God? So that in some way, perhaps all of the works of the flesh are exerted against the Son of God by sinful men. Well, I think this is right. And I think it also brings up this aspect of how he embodies what is embodied even here earlier in the history of redemption. And I want us to think a little bit about this, that if these are the fruits of the Spirit, we've already said obedience to the law of God, the law of love, right, in Christ is the fullness in the Spirit. And we've suggested that law here was that law disobeyed by Israel, right? Israel's disobedience, which brought curse. And what God says is, in effect, I'm going to take that curse in my son. He is the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. And I will bring you to make the law dwell in your heart. So is it not true that all these works of the flesh are works performed ultimately by Israel herself? Israel was idolatrous. There were sorceries in the land. There was fornication in the land. And the Lord God says, I am going to reverse that. And I'm going to bring a new day by my redemptive work. And then he has the son. All of these sins exerted against him and he himself bearing the curse for all of these sins and being raised for the dead. So that we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires in the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. Well, let's look back to um, verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Well, is there an allusion to Israel being led by the Spirit in the wilderness here? As if we have the new redemption that has come in Christ Jesus, the new deliverance, the new liberation as Israel was liberated from bondage. 
fact, it's very interesting, the Exodus passage, which refers to this, and I didn't put this in my notes, where he, the Israelites cry to the Lord to be liberated from bondage, and they are the Son of God. Well, that language is picked up in Romans 8, where you see, you are sons, and you have been liberated sons, and you cry, Abba, Father, which is found here in Galatians chapter 4 as well, as sons crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, do we have that liberation here now being you're led by the Spirit in that eschatological leading of the Spirit now in the fullness of the time as the sons of God? Well, again, we are brought to a, not only a subjective work of the Spirit in our hearts, we're led by the Spirit subjectively, but we're also led to that objective leading maybe even as Israel was objectively led in the wilderness. And he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. How do we take this? In this epistle, you are not under the law. If you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law and its curse and dominion. You are not under this situation under the law. You have come to the new age of the Spirit. Do not go back to the former era. In fact, he has something similar in Romans 8.14. Led by the Spirit. Someone want to read that? All who are led by the Spirit are sons. Ours are, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. See? You're not under law, you're sons. In Romans, is Paul picking up on something that, is he expanding upon something that's implicit here in this book? You see, because in this book, remember we talked about your being sons in the fullness of the time, chapter 4. No longer slaves, but sons now being led by the Spirit. So in Romans, if you're led by the Spirit, you're sons of God. Sons in the Son of God himself. Well, when we look at this structure here, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Um, certainly, first of all, we can compare this to verse 25. If you live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. But I want you to think about something else first, and that is, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Is this implicitly contrasted to something in the middle, which is the end of verse 21, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice the works of the flesh are under the curse of the flesh as if they are under the law, and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yes, David. Which brings me to my question about verse 21, Mm -hmm. and non-inheritance. Today, there's, in our uh, 
common law heritage, there's two ways to not inherit. One is not to be a member of the family. The other is that you get written out of the will because you've been disobedient or done something to gain that status of being disinherited. So in the biblical text, one would not inherit if you were not a member of God's family. And you also have the situation where someone who has come to faith in Christ and has been persistently, stubbornly going back to the old economy and not walking in the spirit, not inherit, being in the, having salvation but not having any of the rewards, forfeiting rewards because they are disinherited by their refusal to be spirit-filled and spirit-led. I don't know in Greek society whether they had testamentary documents where someone could be disinherited or have a special inheritance or if it was just purely whether you were a member of the family or not. You can be adopted and receive an inheritance. In fact, that's the way that Augustus ended up getting his, well, at least inheritance from Julius Caesar. And you would have to go and look, probably Gaius is the best place who wrote a thing on Roman law, which is available online, and you would be able to tell me better than I can how different Roman law is to modern law. Because, I mean, I can read through some of that stuff and it makes some sense to me, but not completely. But as far as your other point, as far as inherit the kingdom of God, I think here we're not just talking about people who will be saved. We're not talking about people who will be saved but not inherit the kingdom of God. We're not talking in terms of the way some people interpret 1 Corinthians where a person's going to pass by fire, they'll be saved, but their works will be burned up as if there's some carnal Christianity there. And I don't believe in that interpretation of 1 Corinthians myself. But here is especially, I can't accept it here, because you will not inherit the kingdom of God is very similar to what you find out earlier in chapter 4, verse 30, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Shall not be heir. They will have eternal damnation. They will not inherit. They do not, they do not possess the inheritance of the Spirit now, and so they will not inherit in the future. Okay? And if you don't possess the Spirit now, you won't possess the Spirit inheritance in the future. You are a member of the flesh, and you are going to destruction, eternal judgment. And so this is the seriousness of this epistle. Don't go back to Judaism as if you're going to make works an end in itself, because you're going to have to keep the whole law and keep it perfectly, and if not, you're going to face God's eternal judgment on the last day. So I think this is very serious. 
that um, does not mean he is saying that someone who commits a sin is going to hell. Right? He's talking about those who practice these things unrepentantly. In chapter 6, he will talk about restoring a brother who has fallen. Okay. But here we have unrepentant sinners. And in my view, that includes anyone who does not reconcile themselves to the church and finds themselves outside the church because of their gross sin as well. Uh, as well as hypocrites that do exist in the church. Well, let's let's take a, what I what I want to do is I want to compare this verse to uh, verse eighteen to verse twenty five. Uh, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. And then, if you live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You see how the beginning and end of these verses is similar. Are the beginning of these verses is similar? If by the Spirit, if by the Spirit, okay. So, on the one hand, if you do these things by the Spirit, you are not under law. And so he says, if we walk by the Spirit, let us... And it uses a different verb. Some people think it would be translated, keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, if you're led by the Spirit, let us you know, walk behind the Spirit, walk in accordance with the Spirit. Um, and then he says not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Now, I want, what I want to show you here is that this aspect of... is He's specifically talking at the end here about things that the Judaizers might engage in, okay? In returning to the law, in absolutizing the law. And therefore, I want to use this as a foil to, show, to suggest to you that then when we look at the conflict between flesh and spirit in the middle, the flesh is also what the Judaizers are pursuing as opposed to the spirit. Okay? So here at the end, when he's talking about living by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit, the contrast, the, the opposition to that is let us not become boastful. Let us not live by the flesh and become boastful. Challenging one another, envying one another. Well, what about boastful? Well, we've already looked at that. We've seen that the Judaizers were in fact boasting in 6.13 to 14. That I may, they want you to be circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. So I've been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified to the flesh. I've been crucified to boasting. But Judaizers want to bring you back here and want you to boast. And by then perverting this, they turn it into a big boast. You may ultimately boast in the flesh and not in the Lord. So these are the fruits of returning to the former era under the law and therefore challenging one another, you see, as if you're at odds with one another. I mean, certainly in goodness and grace, there are certain, uh, even with God's goodness and grace, there are certain degrees of one having a higher position under the law than another in terms of the inheritance rights. That wasn't meant for challenging and boasting, but there's some degree of boasting still not eradicated under the law. 
So if you go back to the law and then you absolutize it, what you are doing is you are absolutizing differences between people. Status. You've got a different status than I've got, and I've got this great status, or I try to get this great status so I can boast over against you. And so I can challenge you. You see, I'm going to challenge you to something so that I can boast. I'm better than you. And that's, see, that's what's going on in the church as they're going back. Judaizers are drawing them back to the law. They're drawing them back to this absolutely boasting, absolutely challenging one another, and therefore envying one another. You see, if you, if your mind is set on the flesh, you envy what another person has in the flesh. That's the sin. You envy what they have in this world. You are not satisfied with the great gifts of the life of God himself. And I think all of these sins, you see, come from the Judaizing point of view. And so even this sin, envying, happens to be a sin that is repeated from the list in verse 21. Envying, drunkenness, carousing, etc. The fruit of the flesh. And thus, I think he may see here discord in the churches of Galatia as a result of this Judaizing heresy. So he says, walk by the Spirit. Well, now let's take a look at the works of the flesh and the, ver- and the fruit of the Spirit in general. Okay. First, there is obviously an objective contrast here between two ages. We've already seen that. And the works of the flesh result from worshiping this age, from making this age our goal, our ultimate goal, our ultimate eschatology. The fruits of the Spirit result in laying hold of a different arena. Result from trusting in Christ, not out of your own works, but trusting in Christ and focusing on the kingdom he has brought. The age of the spirit that he has bought, the benefits of the life above that he has brought. And the flesh, therefore, also results from returning to the former era, as I've suggested to you. Well, it is interesting that Paul does use two different terms here. He uses works of the flesh versus fruit of the Spirit. And there have been a number of suggestions by commentators of why there is this difference. One is, it's been noted that works of the flesh is works. might remind you of works of the law. Is Paul making a comparison here? So the result of being under the law is to break the law and follow the works of the flesh. And then the fruit of the Spirit. Now, fruit can certainly be used to describe good works, I mean, bad works as well as good works. As Jesus says, by their fruits you will know them, so there are bad fruits. But 
Paul, on the other hand, in Romans 6, uses it in such a way as to say, what fruit have you from the things of which you are now ashamed? And some have seen in that that maybe, as this was Thomas Aquinas' suggestion, you see that he in Galatians and Romans is looking at it specifically that no, fruit is something that is a fruit of God's work in the people of God. Well, there's another thing that's interesting about this. He uses fruit in the singular, and he uses works in the plural. In fact, some have suggested, therefore, that the fruit are united by grace, and the works are concatenated and emphasize the disunity and disharmony. In fact, some have suggested that even as you look at the list, the list of the fruits, the way he lists the fruits is harmonious, whereas the way that he lists the works of the flesh seems much more discordant. Well, there's one thing that I think we can point out. We follow with Jonathan Edwards, who wrote a wonderful book called The Nature of True Virtue, is that true virtue is united in the heart. So if we have the fruit here, maybe it's emphasizing the union of all the virtues in the Christian life. What Edwards says is that every true Christian has all of the virtues in some measure in their heart. Whereas the unbeliever may seem to be virtuous in one area, but he is completely unvirtuous or highly unvirtuous in other areas. So he would speak about universal grace in the heart. And Edward speaks of love as being the capstone of all these, charity and its fruits, love and its fruits. So this, this thought of the fruit of the Spirit may bring us back to the law of love and all things united together, united ultimately in Christ. Well, I have already suggested to you that the Galatians by works may be returning back, you see, to the era of the law and absolutizing the flesh. And we saw something in chapter 4 which was interesting. He compared the elementary principles under the law, the elementary principles under the law, to the elementary principles, all in big letters, okay, of the world. And he then compared days, months, seasons, and years. He says he fears for them. They're returning to days, months, seasons, and years, as if that's under the law. And But in effect, he says, for you, that's returning to paganism. Well, some have actually suggested an organization to this, and I take this from Ben Witherington III, who's a New Testament scholar, who's evangelical, although you've got to be a little careful of Ben Witherington, uh, and especially here in Galatians at certain points, is he does make an interesting suggestion, and I, I, I only give this to you as a suggestion because I haven't fully worked this out, but that is he thinks that the first and last set of the works of the flesh would be those that might be associated with pagan festivals. Um, for instance, you have um, the deeds of the flesh 
being immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities. Okay. This idea of idolatry would certainly be what a pagan festival is for. And in many pagan festivals, after the women and the children left, there was unbridled sensuality. Um, and perhaps there is some sort of sorcery associated with this. Then the last uh, of these two is, um, is drunkenness, carousing, and like things like these. And that's what would happen. There would be drinking bouts in the symposium, uh, drunkenness, uh, and also carousing, as I'd mentioned. So that he thinks perhaps we, we have uh, pagan things, especially on the outside. And then I've already shown you a comparison between uh, the fruits of returning to the law, boasting and so forth, you see, uh, and he sees those as connected more to the fruits that are in the middle, the Judaizers. Okay. Well, if this is correct, um, then it would be interesting because Paul would be making a comparison once again with returning to the law and absolutizing the former era of the history of redemption with returning to paganism. Now, um, we also have um, other suggestions, and uh, we'll see Thomas Aquinas make some other uh, relationships between contrast between the fruits of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit, which would put it in a different light, would not make this distinction. Um, but you can think about that one. And uh, I want us to think... Now, a little bit about the fruits of the flesh in terms of the Old Testament. Yes, Jim? Are you commending Aquinas? Um, I am, oh, I'm not commending Aquinas in everything, and I, he's probably not right in this other thing, too. He's not right about his view of justification, okay? He's wrong in many things in that book in Galatians. I'm just saying I noticed this other comparison and contrast in Aquinas at some particular point, that not all commentators, nobody else, I've never, you know. He got one thing right. He might have gotten one thing right. But <laughs> this in Witherington, and I've gone through a number of commentaries, Witherington is the only one I've seen this contrast in, okay? This, this was suggested by him. So, anyways, uh, yes, we do not commend Thomas Aquinas's uh, perversion of Galatians at the seminary. Um, his, his view of justification and his work, uh, his view of faith formed by love, which is in chapter 5, which is an abominable thing, uh, which is the heart of uh, what became the Roman Catholic idolatry, in effect. Um, and that is the perversion uh, that of justification, ultimately, which leads to Rome's rejection of the Reformers. So, anyways, uh, the, uh, here I want us to think as something I've suggested to you before that there's this, if we're looking at a contrast to the former era, we could be even looking at the flesh, the sins of the flesh, and here, idolatry. Okay, so that if there is this similarity, this comparison here, 
It is because those who rebel against the law of God and, in effect, absolutize their life in the land, which is what the Jews did. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They thought they had the blessings of God, and therefore they forgot the Lord, did they not? And they turned to idols because they ended up worshiping this world. They wanted to control the blessings they had. That's what idolatry is. You can control this little idol over here, can't you? And you can get what you want from it, at least you think you can. It's an impersonal thing, but you think you can control it. They turn to idolatry. And Zephaniah 1.4 mentions this background of Israel in idolatry. And, of course, we know of many of the sins that Israel committed in their rebellion against God in the exile. And I didn't really have time to follow up with all of this uh, for the sake of time, but I think you will see that some of these sins of the flesh are clearly represented in their life. And here we have them being cast out in exile because ultimately this is a sign of the judgment of God upon the majority of people who have indeed, who have indeed apostatized. And so they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And now, you see, those now who are being called to return back to the law are absolutizing the law. They're making it an end of itself. They're making it an idol. They are making it an idol. And in effect, turning to idolatry, turning to sorcery. When you think about these sins, when you think about these sins, think about them in terms of their orientation toward the flesh. And let me make a few suggestions to you. Immorality is in not immorality, uh, especially in a sexual form here, immorality, a perversion of that which God has instituted first in the Garden of Eden that wonderful marriage union between Adam and Eve, which perhaps was to anticipate, which was to anticipate that union that Adam would have with him and God should he pass the test, and that Eve would have with her and God should should Adam pass the test? Yes, so that union anticipates a greater union and is a foretaste, is, is, is a call to look forward to that greater union. And therefore, it is fully realized, as Ephesians 5 emphasizes, that Christ is our husband who has loved his church and given himself up for her. Now we possess that abundance of union in the resurrection of Christ. And so, the husband is to love his wife in Christ Jesus, out of the love of Christ, out of being a participant above Even when she does not give him all that he should expect in that marriage relationship, he can say, I am satisfied with what I have above, and I can give of myself. I can give out of the abundance that's above. Immorality says no. There is no relationship between that union and a union that's above. I make the union of this world an absolute, an end in itself, And I make it, therefore, for me. I make it an idol. What do I do? I dehumanize you, right? I use you and manipulate you. Now, Calvin, in a sermon on this, said that he thinks that the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit are mentioned in specific ways, 
so that we might repent specifically. And so I thought I would read to you some of what the Westminster Standards say uh, about this uh, sin, for instance. Which is the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment is thou shalt not commit adultery. What are the duties required in the seventh commandment? The duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior, and the preservation of it in ourselves and others, watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses, temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty in apparel, marriage by those that have not the gift of continency, conjugal love and cohabitation, diligent labor in our callings, shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting temptations thereunto. What are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications, or listening thereunto, wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping stews, keeping of stews, and resorting to them, entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or others. Paul himself implicitly penetrates our hearts with the works of the flesh that he enumerates, that we may see our guilt, the terror of the law, and what it is to be under the law, and the condemnation that results from the law, which should bring a terror to the consciences of the unbelieving, and should draw us to the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And each of these other works of the flesh arise out of worshiping the flesh. Think of this. Sorcery. A sorcerer does not a sorcerer try to work to control the things of this world so that they, by their magic. There are other forms of sorcery too, you know. Besides the explicit one. Enmities and strife. Does not this person who focuses on the world want to exalt themselves once again in boasting? And is there therefore not strife in that community where one seeks to exalt himself or herself above others? 
They must compete for favors. Outbursts of anger. Do not these outbursts of anger arise then from a worship of the world? A focus on the world. Are you angry in unrighteous anger here? Notice, this is not righteous indignation. This is unrighteous anger. You're angry because something has been taken from you. Something in this world which you worship. Continual outbursts of anger. And then he also speaks of dissensions amongst people, similar jealousies, you see. Envying, once again, we envy people for the things they have in this world. Drunkenness and carousing, again, drunkenness to avoid the pressures of the world because I really do worship the world and I really do hate it when it is crashing down upon me. And therefore, I've got to relieve my mind. I've got to forget about this because I have no satisfaction in anything else. I do not have satisfaction in God himself. I have no relief in him. I must seek it elsewhere. Well, he has said, of these things, I tell you, I forewarn you just as I had forewarned you those that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. See, they will not inherit in the future. This is the future kingdom. They will not inherit it. If you do not live out of it now, if you do not live out of the spirit now, that is by your practice, you will not inherit the kingdom of God in the future. You see, those who continually practice these things, those who practice them and do not come to repentance will not inherit the kingdom of God. So is he then thinking about they will not inherit the kingdom of God, and he's talking about inherit. Is he been saying in this epistle earlier, is there a kingdom theme that I haven't been focusing on as much, even though we've been focusing on eschatology, maybe not in terms of the kingdom motif. Is there an implicit kingdom motif here insofar as we've already been made inheritors? Is that... Are the phrases in this epistle, when he speaks about being in Christ, are we to think of these very specifically, messianically, in terms of the kingdom theme? The resurrection of Christ as the king. Paul as an apostle of the king. You see, the the Gentiles, the message going out from this kingdom, you know, kingdoms have a realm, going out from this kingdom to the nations. See, And the nations being invited in to that kingdom. And therefore, the Son of God being the Son of the great King, God the Father, and the Son of God being triumphal in his resurrection as the King of kings. And that inheritance being the inheritance of the kingdom. Well, certainly here, those who do not do such, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, There is uh, also, then, the fruits of the Spirit. And some have, uh, I take another thing from Witherington as a suggestion for the contrast that he suggests between the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. 
He thinks, therefore, that the fruit of the flesh, here being broad, but that main, the main fruits of the Spirit happen to be contrasting uh, the, the fruits of the flesh in the middle section. Um, and where I was suggesting something where maybe Aquinas got something right, is he also suggests ways in which the fruit okay, of the Spirit also contrasts these outer areas here. Uh, and maybe there's something to that. But let me give you Witherington's suggestions very briefly, because we don't have time. Hatred versus love. Quick temper versus patient endurance. Fits of rage versus kindness. Repeated acts of selfish ambition versus generosity. Dissensions or seditions. Party factious groups versus faithfulness, those who are dedicated to others. Acts of ill will, malice, and envy versus considerateness. Well, clearly, one thing that we do see is that the fruits of the Spirit are the fruits of the Holy Spirit of this age that has come in Christ. In fact, we are given a hint as how to interpret all the fruits of the Spirit by this fruit of joy. You can see joy there, okay, being the second main fruit of the Spirit. And where do we find joy earlier in this epistle? We find joy earlier in chapter 4, verse 27. Actually, we'll read verse 26. I'll read verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are in labor, for more of the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. He is calling for eschatological joy. He is calling for joy in the light of the fact that the city of God has come, that the prophetic promises have arrived. You see, in the old era, when Israel was being destroyed, when she came under the curse of the law, what did Jeremiah write that was not so joyful? He wrote a book of Lamentations, did he not? And Lamentations 5.15 is a verse that speaks forward that, that, uh, that, that sorrow from the city. And yet, there is the prophecy of Isaiah, you see, that in the future age, there will be shouts of joy. Why? Because the curse that was laid upon the people of God has been reversed forever. And therefore, they dwell in that Jerusalem which is above forever. And they will never be cast out of that city Therefore, is there any reason for lamentation? No. It's reason for joy and rejoicing. And that is what happened in Christ. Christ bore the curse of the law. He took that curse upon himself in his death. He was raised into liberty and newness of life in the Spirit. And in the Spirit, he possesses for us that Jerusalem which is above. We are made participants in that. We are out from under the curse of the law. And we are made participants in the heavenly kingdom of God, in the city above. Rejoice! You see how that's a fruit of that joy? 
That's a fruit of the Spirit's work. And so also all the other fruits that are here, you see. Love is also. We're saying love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is that. For in this, we now have the full love of Christ Jesus. Though God had his love upon Israel, she was yet cast out of the land. She was called, in effect, not my loved one, at least externally speaking. And God says, in that day, you see, in Hosea, I am going to betroth her to me again in righteousness. And I will love her. He was not my loved one, will be called my loved one. And therefore, he now has expressed his love in the fullness of the time in a way that will never be taken from us, eternal in the heavens. We will never be cast out again in exile from that inheritance as we lay hold of that by faith. And therefore, we experience the fullness of the love of God. You see, this is the fruit of the Spirit. It's also the Spirit's own joy. This is the fruit of the Spirit himself. The Spirit rejoices between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity. And he's invited us into that joy so that he rejoices over us. And we enter into that joy. So he loves us as the love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. Now we possess that in the resurrection of Christ in the fullness of the times. And now out of that, you should be, can you not be satisfied with that love? And out of that love, having the heart filled with that love, then love others and rejoice over others in Christ Jesus. Not seek discord amongst them, not competition. You don't need that. You've got the glories of the age to come. What do you need that other rubbish for? And so all of the fruits of the Spirit are in the same light. Zephaniah 3, 12 to 17 speaks of God's own love and joy over his people in the future age. And here we have it. We have it and all of the blessings. Is this not the peace of the kingdom? Peace, whereas there was war and discord here. Has not that discord been removed? The people of God besieged by the foreign nations, now and at odds with God himself, whose curse was upon them, now Christ has made peace by his blood, has brought you into that peaceful, blessed kingdom. Therefore, that peace is yours. And so, with the other fruits of patience and kindness, God has now expressed his own patience and kindness to the world as he waits for the coming of the Son to bring final judgment. And so he calls us to be patient in him. One who is impatient cares for the things of the world and how soon they will come. But if you possess the glory that's above, you, like God himself, in union with him in his Son, may be patient and long-suffering. Long-suffering, faithful to others, showing goodness, gentle and self-controlled because the self-control he's talking about comes not out of your own works, but out of the fullness of the life that is above. We control ourselves versus the unself-control of those in the world who do not control themselves because we find our prize above. We find our prize in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his wonderful kingdom. You see, that's how we have been crucified to the world and the world to us. That's how in Christ Jesus we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And though we struggle against those, 
You see, he is saying, we live by the Spirit. And if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Overcoming of those fleshly desires and sinful desires is by living by the Spirit, by faith in the reality that has come in Jesus Christ, and by laying hold of that glory by faith. It is yours in the Son of God, who loves you, who rejoices over you, and who has peace with you and is patient with you, waiting for the day when you will be with him and inherit his kingdom and possess that love and that joy and that peace and that glory before his throne in great exaltation and full of joy and glory in Christ our Savior. Any comments or questions before we go? Yes, David. I have a real practical problem. Okay. I earn a living by my profession, which is wholly and totally dedicated to repaying evil with evil. People don't call me up and say, how should I uh, be forgiving towards my adversary and try to uh, accommodate him and pray for him and ask God's blessing on him? They don't call me up for asking that. They want me to go out and repay evil for evil. So I resolve it by, I just won't prosecute a claim. It's far easier for me to defend somebody that's a criminal defendant because they are not trying to do in somebody or somebody else. They often come to repentance. But I can't, I can't. You want a prosecute claim, don't come to me. I can't do it. I cannot be functioning in my profession and be filled with the Spirit trying to accomplish goals that are only accomplished in the exercise of the flesh. I just can't do it. I, I, I don't mean to no, I, I've thought about your profession before and thought it is a very difficult. You have you come into contact with very difficult situations. Um, not being an attorney myself, I only give you my tentative uh, suggestion in accordance with this, and that is that I think that in, if you're able to discern cases of genuine justice, and this is not always discernible, I suspect. Um, but able to discern cases of genuine justice from injustice, um, then I think you're at liberty to take on cases of genuine justice. Yeah, but, but no but, no client wants justice. The defendant doesn't want justice in a criminal trial. He wants off. He wants to get acquitted. He wants to be relieved of the yeah. judgment that would come by justice. And uh, those who want to get bring a civil claim and, and prosecute it, 
they're not wanting justice. They want something. They want money. They want a decree. They want something in their favor. No individual client ever wants justice. It may be the end product of a well-designed system, but clients don't want justice. Well, um, I'll let you have the last word on that one. (laughs) Thank you, David. All right, you guys are dismissed.